From National Securities Corporation, it's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. All right, today I'm here with uh, Jason Hitch, who is the uh, co-CEO and one of the owners of Hitch Enterprises. Hitch Enterprises is a large uh, feed yard and pork producer. So what I'd like to do is just start off with a bit of background from you, Jason. So um, thank you for joining the podcast. Absolutely. I'm glad to do it. Uh, My name is again, Jason Hitch. I'm a fifth generation rancher and feed yard operator in the Oklahoma Panhandle. And we are very much a a conventional beef producer here. We've been heavily involved in our industry, uh, something my family's believed in for a long time. And by that, I mean we serve on national cattlemen's and our state representation. And it's always been something that we thought was very important. You recently um, were appointed to the federal level? Of- cattlemen's Beef Board. Okay, Cattlemen's Beef Board. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what that entails? National Cattlemen's uh, Beef Association has two sides, a policy side and then the checkoff side. The Cattlemen's Beef Board is the checkoff side, which gets out the marketing messaging, um, researches new ways and to sell our products, and really is the government side of the, the government voice side of the beef industry. Um, it's ran by producers who are appointed by the government. And I have never served over there um, I think my dad might have at some point, but not in my recent memory. But I've always been over on the policy side, working on politics and other things like that. I I agreed to switch and work with the beef councils and the beef board, try to come up with government solutions for how we market our beef and what where we do it in the trade and things like that. Where um where do you sort of see? Hitch Enterprises falling into the feed yard sector, and and the question is really more of how many are family owned operations and how many are, are are corporations held by many shareholders, and could you get a, a little bit of background on on Hitch? How many? Uh, what's your capacity and and um, you know uh, when you were founded and and sort of how you sort of fit into the sector. In ag, a lot of our operations, I mean, not Hitch, but in general, our family, even if they've gone corporate in the meantime, and the feed yard business is no different. Our operation actually started in 1884 as a ranching uh, operation, and then in the 50s converted a lot of that into feed yard operations. Uh, My grandfather uh, purchased from his father, actually was given from his father, a chunk of ground to start building pens on and try this feed yard thing out in the early 50s, hmm. um, which he had seen feed yards after World War II when he was driving home 
after the war was over. Uh, he drove home and drove through California and through Arizona, both of which had feed yards by then. And so he saw those and, and decided to try it. And we got in in the 50s, and we've been growing ever since. And early on, like a lot of things, um, it was all family businesses. There really wasn't any um, non-family business enterprises. They weren't all incorporated, but that happened just as a result for liability control, for be, being able to bring on new shareholders, even if they were family. Mm -hmm. um, you get more complex business structures just to allow for more complex ownership. So since then, you're you're now sort of in, in the top 20 in terms of size yes. and, and feed yards. The, the feed yard business, like I said, really started in the 50s, maybe the late 40s um, as, a, as a real industry and has taken off since then. And what people don't appreciate about confined animal feeding operations, or some people call them factory farms or, or whatever, it's a, it's a more industrialized form of agriculture. It's also highly efficient. And the animals there are only there for a maximum of a couple of hundred days, um, really. And that's assuming you take in a very light animal. Most of the time they're there for less than six months. And they really finish up and they get fattened for slaughter in a really rapid fashion, but they spend the majority of their lives out on grass and pasture. So really you can say any animal in the feed yard was grass raised. It was raised on grass. It was just finished on grain. Um, and even our diet on the feed yard is still starting out mostly a uh, what do you want to call it? A roughage-based diet. It's only during the final finishing phase that grain really kicks in at a high rate. And that's just because it's the most efficient way to put that final weight and finish on the animal um, in as short a time as possible. And So why do you think people are, are, are saying that agriculture is such a negative contributor to, to the environment and, um, and they, they really point to... Uh, factory farming as an example? There's two or three reasons, I think. First of all, we don't fit the their mental picture of what the farm should look like. The red barn and the little silos, you know, and a, an assortment of different animals. Um, but that hasn't been economically viable for, gosh, probably 50 years. I mean, there's some small little niche players that are kind of coming back, but even they're not in the red barn and the little silo. They're right next to town raising you know on 30 acres a, a few head and selling them at the farmer's market but that's not really probably supporting their whole family and it's not sustainable as an industry i mean when you think about food and the amount of food that it takes to feed in our country alone 380 million people um, that kind of operation at the farmer's market is not an efficient way or even a reasonable way for people to raise livestock. First of all, we don't all live near towns. I mean, I, my town is 300 miles from really the next really large metropolitan area that would be capable of buying large quantities of meat. But would you make the argument that, um, you know, contained animal uh, feeding operations are actually not as environmentally bad as people might think? And, and, and what contributions might they have to the environment? So, I mean, first of all, they're, they're a managed entity. Um, they're typically regulated. 
I would tell you that they're not near as detrimental to the environment as people see them. They might not be as pretty as people have in their mental image of the pasture and things like that. But whether you take those animals and spread them over a large area or concentrate them into a small area, um, I think if you're worried about cow flatulence and things like that, the, the, it's the same. I will also say, you know, and this, this is one of the science things, I got involved in sustainability efforts and things like that, and I've served on, I'm still on the sustainability uh, roundtable and everything as a leading member. One of the things we learned is that animals raised on grass and lots of roughage, just like you and me, they have more gas. Yeah. Um, and so they actually produce more of the greenhouse gases than an animal that's being finished out on, on the grain. And the other thing would be the grass-fed animal takes much longer time to get to a finished state. So they're going to be out there emitting over a much longer period of time to get to a similar weight class as the grain finished animal, which is going to be much faster, much shorter duration, uh, much more intensive. And so when you balance those two things out to get a pound of meat, so to speak, the conventional finish is a much more efficient, environmentally friendly process. The and the other thing would be the scientists would say that the meat is almost indistinguishable. I and mean, there is 0.001 difference in some of the types of fatty acids that are present, but it's so small as to be infinitesimal. And like that's said, interesting because that's a huge marketing ploy. It for is the, for the grass-fed guys. It is. I mean, they, they sort of live and die on that sword. They do. They. Uh, reported as if it's a huge disparity, you know, that the oh, omega-3s and some of the other fatty acids that people are really seeking, that there's a wide, wide difference, but there's really not. A, at most, there's like a half a percent. Yeah. Um, and you think if people understood conventional farming better, that it would really challenge this emerging trend with natural and organic and consumer, are consumer tastes and preferences being driven off of a misunderstanding of agriculture, in your view? I think absolutely. I mean, and I think ag's partly to blame for that. We are terrible about getting out there and telling our story. First of all, most of us want to get up in the morning and do our job and work with the animals, work with our people. We don't really want to be propagandists and spending time writing articles and having tour buses come through, although my focus is more with people. Um, I manage employees and do things like that, so I do spend more time interacting with people than a lot of my employees who go to work and they have a very small pool of people that they interact with. But I think agriculture has done a terrible job. I also think people, our consumers, are so many generations removed from food production. They don't know what's reality and what's not. And so they're very easy to be preyed upon by misinformation, bad news. Um, people can get them worked up over fears that are not necessarily realistic because they don't know any better. And they don't know any better because they don't have any interaction or involvement with how their feed, food is raised. I tell people if they want to choose grass-fed or organic or any of those things, I don't have a problem with it. It's an extrinsic to the meat itself, though. they got to understand that that's not that it, the, the meat is not better for you or anything better for the environment. It is simply a, you're placing value on something other than the meat, the process by which it was created or something else. And you got to understand, you got to pay for that, mm -hmm. and it's not a uh, not something that I think all of society can afford. Yeah, we were just joined by Chris Hitch, who is the uh, the brother of Jason and the co CEO. 
Chris, welcome to the conversation. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I'd, I'd add to the, to the, they talk about omega-3 fatty acids in beef, which, for example, our beef is a terrible source of omega-3 fatty acids. You're eating the wrong food to get that. And yeah. Nobody thinks that that's the goal of it. We have lots of iron and lots of, lots of other nutrients in beef that aren't available in some of the other proteins. Yeah. So, so, or at least not in a, as an abundance. So I, that's how I try to explain this. Like the, it's, it's like Jason said, you're prioritizing a production system, which is fine. I personally love grass-fed beef. I think it tastes better, yeah. but that's me. It's got a little more gamey flavor to it. And if you see real grass-fed beef, the fat should be yellow. If you have grass-fed beef and the fat is white, it was finished on corn. I promise you, because there's only one way to turn fat white, and that is to feed them corn. So a lot of times you go into Whole Foods and they have grass-fed beef that has white fat. What that means is they got a truck delivering corn to a trough in a pasture, and the cattle are eating that corn. <laughs> That's interesting. And they, they keep 95% of the efficiency of a feed yard, a conventional feeding system, in a pastoral setting. And what people are thinking of is a guy in overalls with a piece of grass sticking out of his mouth and a pitchfork in his hand. And that's how that animal got fat. <laughs> and a big fat. cowboy and hat. it's not that. That's big, not blue, the big blue skies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's still not the case. Yeah. Um, that does happen, but you, most you, of those guys are very the, small. Uh, the conventional beef side where you guys live and breathe is is under attack. I mean, maybe under attack <laughs> is a strong word, but you you have natural. You have organic and now you have the emergence of plant protein that's claiming to taste like beef how, how do you react to all of these new trends and, and specifically i'd love to get your views on plant protein well and i'm i'm gonna jump in there this jason i i do i don't necessarily see it as under attack i mean I, there's a market there that everybody's trying to get a piece of i think the bigger thing to us that really somewhat gets irritating is when they talk about not eating meat because they're trying to save the environment or do something else. And they talk about burning down forests. And we don't burn down forests in the U.S. Um, you know, not eating beef in the U.S. is not going to stop some farmer in Brazil from burning down a forest. Yeah, All the beef essentially in the U.S. is raised in the U.S. I didn't, I didn't, small... I didn't realize that was an argument that people were making the oh, claim I, of burning yeah, down forests. I get on airlines, you know, and you have those elevator conversations with people and they say, well, I, you know, I've kind of cut back on my beef because I felt guilty about it because, you know, they're burning down forests to raise my beef. And I'm like, we don't raise, we don't burn down any forest to raise beef that you eat in the U.S. Um, if you're concerned about that, when you go to Brazil, don't eat their beef. But, but do you think that there is a potential seismic shift in tastes and preferences of the consumer that's shifting the demand curve downward and what's replacing uh, that that shift is plant protein and and products in the marketplace that lay claim to having a flavor profile of beef. Could I, that eat into your business? I mean, if they're gonna they're gonna have to take a piece of our business to grow their. I say that I don't know that that's true. Protein, first of all, let's just back up and say for children's development, protein is incredibly important, and beef is probably one of the most nutritionally dense protein sources you can get. 
nutritionally, meaning it's got lots of other vitamins and other things in it um, that you can get. I mean, you, you'd have to eat pounds of spinach or other things to get the same that you get in a five ounce serving of beef. I like that. The, uh, you're a red meat animal. You are. I have an eye in So why, when you eat things that are also red meat that mirrors what you, the tissues you have in your body, it also happens to mirror the nutritional profile that your body needs mm -hmm. to survive. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think that Jason's point, when you're talking about a child that go undergoing, they're growing tissue. You need to provide them a food source that provides nutrient makeup that matches what they're doing. Otherwise, they got to eat a lot more of it. I, and I do worry about the plant-based meats being labeled as a meat or being tried sold as an alternative to meat. I don't have any problem with plants. In fact, I eat plenty of them and like them just fine. <laughs> but I don't know that I compare them to be the same or, or a direct replacement. I think these, these newer gen, younger generations may be the way to say it are hunting around, and I think there's a lot of, uh, I want to say, guilt or misinformation that's somewhat driving their choices into those. I have found it interesting in the last few days, they've analyzed the sales of plant protein-based competing products, which label themselves as competing with beef, as opposed to just buying dried beans or lentils or something, um, but products that actually attempt to directly compete with meat They've looked at the sales, and it would appear that, like, Burger King, I think, just released their numbers, and their sales of bur actual beef burgers didn't change at all, even though they picked up 3 or 4% additional sales on well, plant-based, which Burger King is interpreting that to mean that what's happening is families that used to not bring their vegetarian or vegan uh family member because they weren't going to eat a meat burger are now dining out there and still eating the beef burgers they want. But now the one family member is also getting to eat a plant-based burger. That's how they're interpreting it. I can't tell you honestly what it is, but I did find it interesting that sales did not fall off, even though they started selling what many would consider a competing product. Well, I'll tell you. They didn't cannibalize. The right, exactly. I tell you, if, that would kind of concern me if I were on the plant protein side because it could be interpreted that people are just generally curious mm -hmm. about the claim they're making. Does it taste like it? And so they're not giving up their beef consumption, but out of curiosity, they're trying this vegetarian burger. Will it be sustained or not? I think if, if we start to see a drop in same store sales of the plant protein burger at Burger King, that will be very telling that, 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 that will be the message to the beef side that it's not at risk. And I, I mean, I think there's enough room for everybody. I mean, I, first of all, I just think people in general probably need more, more protein in their diet than they're probably getting. So worldwide, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of market for, for beef. I mean, yeah. it, let's just be it, real. Yeah. Worldwide, there's plenty of, there's plenty of room. The U.S. may be a shrinking market as far as because of eating has become an ethical or moral journey as opposed to a necessity, if you will. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as people's mentally change, they may decide that ethically or morally, they don't feel like they can eat meat, which is fine. But that doesn't mean the guy over in China who just got raised from, you know, abject poverty to middle class or something along those lines 
that now wants to eat a cheeseburger. Yep. There, there's a lot of people in China. There's a whole lot of people in China. And all you got to feed them is one hamburger a day, and that's a lot of dang hamburgers these days. So I, I, I'm, I'm less concerned about the overall market than I am the individual market within the U.S. What I, what I really see on a lot of these are these companies that are trying to disparage the other product in order to promote their own. Right. Um, that's where I think the milk people and the beef people and a lot of these folks really get their ire up is um, promote your product. That's fine. Let's, let's promote and, you know, you can sell yours and I can sell mine. But you don't need to disparage the other product yeah. uh, in order to do that. And I think... One of the things that was also interesting that came out just recently, a lot of these companies that were producing these plant-based protein uh, were trying to say that they were more environmentally friendly or whatever. And then after UC Berkeley, I think it's maybe not UC Berkeley, it was a California energy, but I think that probably UC Davis. There's a professor. UC Davis, Davis. Mitloner. Yeah, yeah, was the professor. After he looked at all of it, the amount of water they used, the energy they used, all that, they were less environmentally friendly in their production. Well, that that message that message is not getting out there. <laughs> no, it's not. And I, you know, and to, part of it is it's such a new segment. Yeah, they're still trying to get their arms around what does it actually take to produce it. You know, and not all of them are produced with the same uh, mix of products. And you know, what does that mean? You're not going to convert a cattle ranch, which is growing grass or other things into growing beans or lentils because it's not the place to grow those things. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, cattle eat grass, which is not digestible by humans anyway, can't use it, and you're not ever going to convert them into being a row crop farmer or anything else because that ground's never going to be suitable. I've been talking to uh, Jason Hitch and Chris Hitch, uh, co-CEOs and owners of Hitch Enterprises. Let's talk a minute about, um, you'd mentioned, uh, Chris, you had mentioned the the world... uh, markets and it's a, it's a sizable market where are we in the exports is is the beef sector um getting hit as 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 badly as the pork sector with exports no um why is that well okay so china <clears throat> china is not a i would call a big destination of beef it, it, they're not big beef consumers they're pork consumers um, so, so while your, your market may be down some, it's sort of, once again, it's such a insignificant. Who buys our beef? Is it mostly a domestic market? Um, a lot. Actually, the dollar figure wise, it, I, I think that it's still Japan buys For, the most dollars worth of beef, but it's not volume wise. It's not huge because they buy high end cuts. Domestically, we consume the bulk of our product. Yes. Okay. But of our export partners, our two biggest ones would be Mexico and Japan. Mexico buys lots of low-value cuts. And, well, in Canada. Mexico buys lots, tons and tons of low-value products. Um, Japan buys limited quantities of extremely high-value products. Except for one product, tongues. Yeah. They buy beef tongue. They love, beef tongue's a delicacy, and it's worth absolutely nothing in the U.S. It not You can't now, give it away. The interesting the thing on yeah, beef tongues. I, I don't. I, I haven't eaten a beef tongue here, but I'm, I did have one in Brazil. <laughs> I was gonna say you. They're actually. It's actually a growing product here because of our Hispanic population that eats lingua, which is beef tongue. Um, but it's very. It's still very very small, and the yeah. bulk of those go out of the country because the value here is so small, and the value over there is so high. So let's just put things here in perspective, and and where we might be in the beef production cycle. You have these 
threats of the, on the business. I'm thinking from the perspective, if I'm an investor, why, why would I be compelled to put capital into a conventional beef operation? And I think one of the reasons might be as simple as a cycle play. Are we, are we approaching the bottom or are we at the bottom of a cycle uh, in, in the sector, given, the, given that there are threats with plant protein, the export markets are challenged uh, in the sense that there's, there's a, a trade disruption occurring and it's affecting all agriculture. What's your view on where we are in the cycle? And do you think this is a good time for investors to look at a conventional beef operation? I think right. and one more thing to add to that. I see a lot of consolidation happening within the feed yard space. Do you think that consolidation is being driven by investors seeing that we're at the bottom of a cycle and you need scale to be profitable? Uh, and as prices go up on the next upswing, um, uh, they'll be the, the largest benefactors of that because they were able to scale at size when assets were potentially at a more attractive valuation. And I think you hit the nail on the head there at the end. I mean, I, all of, all of, not shouldn't say, all of agriculture pricing for the last four years has been depressed. It's been pushed down and, and, you know, I think whether you're growing corn, soybeans, cattle, pigs, chicken, if you look across the board, all of those prices have been at some of their lowest points in recent history. And it's put a lot of pressure on those industries. And the beef industry of the livestock production side is probably the least uh, consolidated area, but that's starting to shift. And I think to your point, with uh, Green Plains jumping in, which didn't even exist a couple of years ago, they were an ethanol producer that it's now jumped over into cattle production in a very large way. They went from basically zero to 500,000 head of capacity. I think they're 385. 385. Okay, 385. I apologize. Um, and then, you know, you saw JBS divest their feed yards uh, to raise some capital. Um, that was kind of an unusual thing, but you saw investment groups buying into both of these things that had never been in these spaces before and have suddenly sprung up to be some of the largest producers. And then on top of that, um, you've got several smaller investment groups. And I, I use an investment group somewhat loosely, but FI and um, which is Freon Industries and even to some degree Cactus and Cactus Feed Yards, which is a ESOP uh, owned by the employees, but that's an investment group. You know, they've been adding capacity and doing things um, in the same way. They're, con they're buying up competitors and, got and consolidating them into their deal. Freon and FI bought two or three feed yards that recently sold, and even though they were already large, they got larger. And I think you're just seeing more of that as they're pushing for efficiencies. Um, and let's be honest, the bulk of, of uh, food sales still is done by the person shopping, looking for the best value, the best dollar price. Let's, say, let's say you guys were trying to raise capital. Sure. What would be one or two of the value propositions that might get me as an investor excited to put money into a conventional beef program versus some other opportunity that I'm looking at. We're right now selling cattle for about 119. What it means is the top of our market that we've sold cattle for a few years ago was 170. 
So we've actually fallen down probably, what, 40% off the high? So relatively speaking, cattle have certainly, the value of them has dropped dramatically. The bulk of sales are still conventional. And it's a growing market. And one of the things we're learning as a U.S. production, and I'm speaking now more on the packer side, is how to meet those international or newer demands with new products or new, you know, we're, our packing houses are now getting into breaking carcasses down to meet the Asian market and the Mexican market. I say Mexican, I should say Hispanic, because these people cut up their animals differently. And we've always traditionally said it's the American way and we do it this way. And as you know, it's like the Henry Ford thing. They can have it any color they want to as long as it's black. And our packing houses have been that way for 100 years. But recently, as everybody's trying to do something or find that extra dollar, they've been customizing. Also, as I think you've recently seen, the automation and the sophistication um, of those industries is accelerating. You know, AI and things like that, the ability to Let's look. Let's talk about that for a moment uh, before we have to wrap up this conversation. Artificial intelligence, technology in general, has that found its way into beef production? Yes. How so? So there's sorting systems in feed yards to try to sort animals based on size and score. Um, there is technology to measure an animal's stress and body temperature and things like that so we can get to them faster if they're getting ill, actually maybe intervene before they actually get sick. And then on top of that, when they go in the packing house to, to break the carcass down, sort of like they do on lumber, they can look at that whole carcass and say, we need to cut it up in this way that's different to meet the Asian market because we've got a demand for 130 boxes of Asian boxed meat. And they're smaller cuts and different cuts and smaller boxes, um, whereas we might do a 90-pound box in the U.S., they might only do a 40-pound box in the Asian market. Um, and they break the carcasses down differently. And all the AI, well, our grading system has basically gone all the way over to AI. And in beef cattle, uh, different than pork and other things, you look at the meat and it's marbling and everything else to give it a grading score, whether it's prime or choice or select. And that's really a measure of how much fat content is within the meat, intramuscular deposition as well as around it, and then the size of the cut of meat of the ribeye area. And used to that required a human grader to stand there and grade that over and over and over again. Today, the human grader grades the computer and then the computer goes through and does the next thousand carcasses and it can do it just like that. I mean, they take a picture of every single ribeye cut between, I think, the 12th rib. But and, but in terms of a feed yard. Instead of the feed yard. So, Chris, like, so what, what technology so, do you think so, is out there? So right now, it, it's a very small technology that's, that's very handy is one is a microchip ear tag. And if a farmer or rancher wants to tag his individual animals, we can send it to the yard. We can track that individual animal's performance over the course of its feeding period. Then when he goes into the packing facility, you get the actual animal's individual performance in the packing facility. What was he choice or select or prime? How did he yield? And then he can go back and make um, decisions in his breeding herd to try to meet what a he higher found. Rate. Yeah, yeah, or whatever. I mean, oh, that's it's whatever. Yeah. Um, we, we're also we've also like all of our hospitals in our in our facility 
are set up on a wireless network and we, we're live. So if one of our customers has an animal that goes into the hospital and we give him a shot, put him in, he can, he can literally look up live, see the animals in the hospital, see what drugs he was given and what his temperature was. We're looking at some technology that would do more, including reading temperatures of animals. So one of the things that might attract an investor is all these new potential sources of income and sustainable credits and things like that, which all have values in different marketplaces um, are all kind of coming together now. The technology is finally seeming to mature in several different ways all at once. Um, you know, you know, and some of it's been coming for 20, 30 years, some of it's brand new. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of potential here in the next five years that we'll see huge shifts. Wow. Well, look, I've enjoyed this conversation. It's been very interesting. I think that the uh, the relationships I have that listen to this podcast will will learn a thing or two. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ivan. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Ivan. This discussion has been brought to you by the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, sponsored by National Securities Corporation, a full-service investment banking firm, member FINRA. Please stay tuned for future conversations with leadership in the agribusiness sectors. If you have comments, questions, please feel free to reach out, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, and here's the next time.